in First John. That's uh, where we're studying right now. And uh, we only got through four verses last week of chapter 1. I'm going to finish chapter 1, first two verses, chapter 2. And I, I don't want to rehash uh, all of the introduction. If you weren't here, you just go back online. It should be there. But let me just kind of fit you in briefly real quick. Uh, this is one of five books that John the Apostle wrote. The Gospel that bears his name, the Apocalypse or Revelation, three letters. He wrote them all about the same time. They're the last books written in the New Testament. Um, probably wrote them, depending on who you ask, but at the earliest he wrote them, most conservative scholars would say it was, it was one, uh, the gospel, maybe 80. The, 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 the revelation, probably about 96, would be the latest, um, and somewhere in that period of time. He's the last apostle around, and uh, uh, he, he spent the last part of his life before he was exiled on the island of Patmos. Um, in Asia Minor, in the area of Ephesus. And Ephesus was where his home base was. It's amazing how just fundamentally important Ephesus was in the New Testament. You know, Paul founded a church there and preached there and taught there. He wrote Ephesians, First, Second Timothy, uh, first and Second Timothy, uh, to that church. Peter uh, had been there. He wrote First Peter and Second Peter to the area of Asia Minor, the whole area. Uh, the book of Hebrews was written most likely to Asia Minor, which included Ephesus. Uh, John was probably there when he did most of his writing except for Revelation. And Revelation refers to Ephesus and that surrounding area. It's a critical part of the Christian life. And uh, at the back end of the back end of the first century, um, a philosophy had come into place, which I told you about last week, called Gnosticism. Real quickly, because this is what we're going to look at today is really just this, an attack almost on Gnosticism. And Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosis. Gnosis is, um, there's a couple of words in Greek for knowledge. Gnosis just has to do with that kind of knowledge. It's just knowledge in general, a specific kind of knowledge to some degree. It's, it's the knowledge of information. And um, in, in the concept of gnosis, um, for, the, for the, the Gnostics, the right knowledge, you had to have a certain type of knowledge in order to find the secret to life, what we call salvation. And Gnosticism infected all aspects of the Greco-Roman world and philosophies and multiple religions, especially uh, Christianity. At the heart of this, knowing this knowledge, um, was the concept of duality, which is something that it goes all the way back in the Greco-Roman uh, Greco times to Greece for centuries, is the idea that the physical and the spiritual are separate. And your, your, your spiritual aspect uh, is not influenced by your physical. So in essence, you can sin, what boils down to is this, you can sin all you want, it doesn't affect your relationship with God. That's what it boils down to. And it, it, it's much more complicated and convoluted than that, but for our purposes, that's what it is. And as such, when Gnosticism came in again to infect Christianity at the end of the first and on into the second, uh, and the early church fathers had to battle Gnosticism constantly. They would teach, they would deny the fundamental nature of Jesus that he was fully God, fully man. And fundamentally what they would say, most of them kind of said that there was this guy, Jesus, who lived. And the spirit, this eon, which is part of the Gnostic understanding, is all these eons floating out there. The spirit, Christos, came upon him at his baptism and adopted him in essence. Lived with him right up until the time of his death and abandoned him. And there is this duality in the separation of who you are. Uh, so that you can live your life pretty much any way you want. And like most fraudulent beliefs, and Paul dealt with this with the Judaizers, Judaizers, they came into an existing system, Christianity, 
And they began to teach people who were fundamentally, remember, most people were not educated. They just weren't educated. They didn't even read and write. They don't have all that. They began to teach them that they were wrong, that Jesus is true, and you, you can follow Jesus, but, but what you were taught about Jesus is incorrect. They have the true knowledge and began to do all this. John, the last dude around, the apostles, it going to let them have it. By the way, it is, it is the early church fathers, uh, I don't remember if it was Polycarp or Papias, uh, said that in the city of Ephesus, there was the leader of the Gnostic movement in that era named Serenthus. And he was a, <laughs> you'd think the apostles were just good old boys that opened their arms up and love you no matter what. You're crazy, man. When, when John was in a, Ephesus in the bathhouse and Serenthus walked in, John Nerdy was there. John got up, uh, hopefully he put his clothes back on when he did this, and he left and he said this, I don't want to be in the same place as Serenthus lest the walls come tumbling down and God smite and crush him while I'm there. Th- those old guys were tough. You know, Paul in Galatians, remember that? When he told them, if you teach something's wrong, you just guys go to hell. That's what he said. That's what it means. Anathema is a nice way of saying that good old southern phrase. Where you, where you go. These guys were tough when it came to false teachers. And so he, he starts this off laying out the foundation of his right. And in fact, in verse 1, that he's seen and touched and heard. And then he gets to verse 5. He says, in chapter 1, this is the message. The word message is the, we get our term angel from. This is the message we have heard from him. That is Jesus. This is what Jesus taught us. I'm telling you, this is the message. And I announce to you that God is light, and in him there is no darkness solved. God is light. And so in, in the Gospels and in his epistles, there's multi, several themes that are prominent in John, and light is one of them. And, and the concept of light is so important. John is the one that quotes Jesus in, um, uh, as saying, um, I am the light of the world. I think that's in chapter 8 of John. I think it's 8, 12, 8, 14. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The concept of light had, had, had two functions that were important. Light dealt with the uh, empirical, with knowledge, truth. And light dealt with the ethical, how you live. Now, the Gnostics said that they had true knowledge, knowledge, you know, Gnosis. And John would say that they're liars and frauds because they lack knowledge because they don't have the empirical. They don't have the truth. What they teach is a lie. Paul talks constantly about those who are teaching uh, lies. Later on, we'll see in, in, in this gospel, I mean in this letter, that John says if what they teach doesn't line up with what the Holy Spirit teaches, it doesn't line up with what we've taught you, they're lying to you. They're, they're living darkness. And so part of it has to do with knowledge. The knowledge of the Gnostics is not light, it's darkness. And part has to do with the ethics, how you lived your life. Because the one thing you see repeatedly in the life, in the letters of the apostles, is your faith, your words, what you say you believe, and your life must match up. If you live a sinful life you're not living the Christian life, and we're fixing to see John just hammers on that. So John says, this is the message of Jesus, that God is light, and there is no darkness, there is no falsehood, and there is no darkness, there is no unethical behavior in him at all. You can't live that way. And then verse 6 through 10, he gives three examples of what the Gnostics 
might do, and he, counted, he, he refutes three things. And, and there, there are three what we call conditional sentences that begin with the, uh, the Greek word eon, if. They begin with the word if. If, if, if. If you say, if you practice, if you do this, whatever. So the first in verse 6 and 7, if we say, now he, he's, he's, he's collective we, including himself. If we say that we have fellowship with him, that is Jesus, and yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' his son cleanses us from all sin. So the first thing he says is, if we say that we have fellowship with Jesus, if we, we're followers of Jesus, we walk with Jesus, that he, he is our savior. If you have fellowship with him, but you walk in darkness. The idea of walking is the idea of the journey of, of living your life. They use that term all the time in the Old and New Testament of how one lives your life. If you live in darkness, he, he just said Jesus is light. You know, that God is light and no darkness. So if God is light and there's no darkness, but you're living in darkness because you're living with deceit and you're living with immorality, you lie. You're lying to yourself. You're lying about your faith because we do not practice. We do not do the truth. You do not live out the truth. The word practice is so important because the word practice speaks of the doing of the truth. So the, the, the the Gnostics would say you can believe this and live this way, and it doesn't matter. John is saying, as a follower of Jesus, if you believe this, you must live this way. You must live in accordance to what you believe. Your life must back up your doctrine. Faith is both a proposition, a set of propositions that we believe, and faith is a faithfulness, a way of living. So in verse 7, he gives basically the antidote, the corrective, when he says, so if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, that is Jesus, then we have fellowship, not only with God, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus cleanses us, sanctifies us, washes us from all the sin. So he's saying this. If you live in the light, if your words and your deeds match up, not only do you have fellowship with Jesus, we have fellowship with one another. And that's good. And that's just what we want. Fellowship. We're all on the same page. So what he's telling them is this. Those knucklehead Gnostics, you have no fellowship with them. Because they have no fellowship with the Father. Because they're teaching darkness. They live in darkness. You live in truth. Doesn't mean you don't love them. Later on, he'll talk about loving them. Yeah, you love them. We love them. God love them. But we're just, we're talking about, though, from the standpoint of these are teachers. The Gnostics, these aren't just people who are struggling through life. We get folks all the time come through here struggling with life. Here are living lives that are just in darkness. We love them. We want to love them. We want to help them. We want to connect with them. We care about them. That's not who he's talking about. He's talking about people who say they are teachers. They are preachers. They are, they are, they are the instruments of God's message. Oh, man. No, 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 no. Listen. You may not always agree with me on everything I teach. That's okay. One day you'll come around. There's some minor things we may not all agree on. I got that. You, you, know, you may not be as reformed in what you believe as I am. That's okay. We're all right. You know, 
But here's the thing. If I ever preached that Jesus isn't the only way to God, if I ever denied the four pillars of the Christian faith, creation, revelation, incarnation, resurrection, if I ever teach and ever do anything to take away from the splendor and the grandeur of the resurrection, if I ever teach you that the Bible is not God's word, uh, and, 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 and I understand there may be some things we disagree on. I got all that. You know what I'm talking about. If I ever stop doing that, you run me out of here as fast as you can. I mean, you kick me to the curb and you get rid of me. Because I am teaching heresy. And you don't tolerate that for a second. Now, let me qualify. Just because you disagree with me on some minor point, not the same thing. You don't believe, you know, your millennial view and mine are different. That's all right. That's not the same thing. We're not talking about that. Some people think it's that way, but they're just not right. You understand what I'm saying? You, if someone just shows up and they don't believe the right things about the cross, that's okay. We love them. We'll help them. But if me or, you know, or, or Brian over here or Joe or Troy or Mike or Josh or Barry, did I leave anybody out? Huh? They're all the, guys, all the guys, right? Okay. Because if I didn't, that's not a good sign for that one. <laughs> pastor forgot you were a pastor on staff. If we do that, that's not going to cut it. If someone's teaching a, 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 our kids in Awana, and, and we find out they're teaching something wrong like that, they're teaching falsehood, well, they're not going to cut it. Can't do that. Cannot teach lies. Now, that's the first thing. Here's the second so he talks about cleanses us from all sin. But what about the person? Verse 8 says, but if we say we have no sin, hamartia, no sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. And probably the most famous verse in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all righteousness. But some might say, this is the second, but I have no sin. Now the word sin here, he's speaking of I have no condition of sin. In verse 10, he's going to talk about the acts of sin. Someone says, but I don't have any sin. And, that, that's, and that's, that's what some of the Gnostics would say. Say, wait, 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 wait. Because spiritually I have the right knowledge and what I do physically, but I don't have sin. There's no sin. <laughs> this, is, this is what John, and John hammers them. They say they have no sin. They're deceiving ourselves. And notice the truth is not in us. He said, if we do that, the truth's not in us. And then he has the corrective. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us, cleanse us from all the unrighteousness. In other words, we have to confess the sinfulness of our life. So he's talking about the condition of sin. If you say you're not in the condition of sin, you're deceiving yourselves, you are lying to yourself, you're in serious error. The truth is not in you. The remedy for that is to come face to face with your sinful nature and confess your sins, your sinfulness. And then at that point, understand the Lord who is so faithful and so righteous to cleanse us, to cleanse us and make us whole. And then he says in verse 10, the third conditional sentence, and this is what's important too. But some might say, well, the reason I can say that I have not sinned is that I had not the condition of sin in the nature of sin is I don't commit acts of sins. If we say that we have not sinned, committed acts of sin, then we make him, that is God, a liar, and his word is not in us. So this is the most serious of all when you say, but there is no, I have never sinned. Well, God says you have. 
And you're making God out to be a liar and his word's not in you. And this is what the Gnostics taught. They taught a, a doctrine that says people can live their lives without sinning. I, years ago, I, I think it was when I was still a youth minister at my first church. back. So this is what, 40 years ago, 35, something like that. I don't know, long time. And uh, I remember reading about, about a lady who, who had talked about sinless perfection. Sinless perfection is the fact that you've never sinned, you're perfect like Jesus. And she said, well... And I didn't know her. I mean, she wasn't in my church. I just read about her. But she said was that, you know, as a child, you know, before the age of accountability, we're not held accountable for sin. I didn't sin. The second I reached the age of accountability, I gave my life to Jesus. And because I laid my life to Jesus, I have never sinned since. So I have been perfect. Problem is, she forgot to read First John. Because <laughs> John says, you say you have not sinned. You may got out to be a liar. So what we see here then in verse 8, 9, and 10 is we see the nature of sin. We are sinners by nature. And we are sinners by choice. Pretty much every day when I ask forgiveness, I say, God, forgive me of my sin because I know I'm a sinner by nature. But more than that, God, I have chosen to sin. I'm a sinner by nature. And by choice, and every one of you is the exact same way. You are born with the disposition, the nature of that which is sinful. And how do we know that? Because you make choices to sin. Some of you, most of you, probably every day you sin at least once. Somebody say something like that. Somebody, somebody say something like that. <laughs> Wives are pointing to their husbands. See, I told you. So understand this. Why would you want to call God a liar? <laughs> That's what he says. Now, in case you get too depressed about all this, and in case you worry, all right, well, there's nothing I can do about it. You know, I'm sinfulness. In chapter 2, verse 1 and 2, Paul kind of corrects that. And once again, he corrects the false teaching of the of them. He says, my little children, the, the word little children, technia, uh, is a term of endearment. He's, he, John's old. I mean, he's probably, he's older probably than any of y'all. Yeah, I'll, I'll go older than any of y'all. I'll go ahead and go that. Um, and to them, they were all little children. And he says this, I write these things. Several times he talks about why I write. I write these things to you. So that you won't sin. Now, I write a whole book for you so that you won't sin. I'm writing all of this for you. And this is so cool. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Now, here's what's cool. The word advocate in the Greek is the word paraclete. John uses the word, the noun paraclete, five times. You may not care because you don't care about Greek, but it's important. Four of those times are in the gospel. In all four of those times, he's referring to the Holy Spirit, the paraclete, the parakletos. When he gives the upper room discourse, John 14, 15, 16, which I believe I did uh, the deep fry on last July. Was that the deep fry? Was that July? It was on that, wasn't it? Okay. This July, it's on the book of Revelation. When, when he did that, he is saying, the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, is our advocate. That's what advocate means. Here, John says, 
In this particular case, the advocate is actually Jesus. Jesus is the advocate on our behalf because of sins. The Holy Spirit is the advocate on behalf of Christ for us to God. And the word advocate is a legal term. The paraclete is a legal term. It means to come alongside. Theoretically, an attorney is one who comes alongside you to help you through something. And so it, it, is, it is kind of a legal idea of, of Jesus comes alongside of you. He, what does he come alongside of us to do? To go with the Father in our sins. Now what does he do? And then we have verse 2. And verse 2 is such a cool, so important verse. It, it, is, it is doctrinally a major, major verse, not only in 1 John, but in all the scriptures. For he himself is the propitiation of our sins, and not only for ours, but for the whole world. So let me, there's this really complex word called propitiation. And sometimes it's the word atoning sacrifice. So, so here's the thing about sin. So let me just, let me just lay this doctrine out for you. The doctrine of sin is that we have sinned against God. Our sin is against God. The basic word sin, amartia, which is used here, means to miss a goal. It is to fall short of the standard of God. We fall short of the standard of God in our rebelliousness. Because of that, something has happened in our relationship with God. We have severed that relationship. Sin brings about the wrath of God. And we hate hearing about the wrath of God. You should never preach about the wrath of God. People know God's not wrathful. That's, we in our 21st century American culture have a concept of wrath that is fundamentally different than what they had back in the first century. We think of wrath as this unbridled anger and retribution born of, of a burning sense of our pride being offended and of hatred. The word wrath comes from a word, the fundamental word, and wrath's not even used here, but the fundamental concept of wrath comes from a Greek word that means to slowly come to a point of boiling where eventually you boil over. So, you know, you know how when you want to cook pasta and you put the water on and it takes forever to actually boil? That's the kind of slowness. Wrath is God's reaction to our sin. It is holy, divine determination to deal with sin. Why? Because he's holy. Remember two weeks ago I preached about holiness? God's holy. And the fundamental concept of God is he's holy. And we forget that God is holy. And because he's holy, he's perfect and complete. That which is imperfect, that which is common, that which is profane cannot come into the presence of God. In our sinfulness, we cannot come into the presence of God because he is holy. Instead, God must deal with us in his wrath. And here's the thing. Everybody in the first century understood wrath. Because they all came from religions where the gods or goddesses were mean, spiteful, wrathful people. They had this concept, yeah, if you miss with the gods, you're going to get wrath. They didn't have a problem with that. Here's what is different about God's wrath. Here's what absolutely blows all of that out of the water. Is that God did not force us to deal with his wrath. He took care of it himself in his love. In his love, he sent Jesus to take 
our place to deal with his wrath. And that's what propitiation means. It means that God's righteous holiness, his disposition towards sin, is satisfied by someone else. Jesus. There's a similar word called expiation. Some of your versions may use the word expiation. Expiation is an important word. You don't care about all this, I know, but it's an important distinction. It has to deal with the guilt our condition or guilt is dealt with. It's true that Jesus also takes away the condition of our sin. We call that justification and puts us in right standing. But he also takes away or also deals with God's righteousness towards sin. And here's the beautiful thing about it. Jesus was not an unwilling participant because God and Jesus are one. One God, three personalities. Jesus said, if you've seen the Father, you've seen me. I am the Father, are one. And Jesus came into this world to die in our place, our substitute. And die on our behalf, our sacrifice, to be our propitiation, to deal with our sin problem. And this is what the Gnostics never could wrap themselves around. Is that we don't have two aspects of our life. We have but one. The physical and spiritual are one. It is all separated from God. And Jesus came to be one of us and still be God. And he came because of the love of God. And in the last Sunday of the month, when I preached about all the attributes of God, I finished them all up. John three sixteen for God so loved the world. Jesus came. And John, who wrote that, said he came to deal with the sin problem and wipe it away. And then he says this, not only ours, but for the whole world. Now, this doesn't mean that everybody's sins have been forgiven. What it means is this, that potentially... Anyone can call on Jesus, and he will save them. Which is why Paul wrote, if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And then he said, all who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. The, 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 the Gnostics taught only a few people can have the right knowledge. Only a few will ever obtain it. And old John says, let me tell you something. Jesus died so every one of you, every one of you can live in the truth. Every last one of you. Doesn't matter who you are. What about that sinful, wretched soul that comes here on Sundays that's living that horrible life? Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about, you know, who, doesn't matter, whoever. What about the person that goes to the Lutheran church? Yeah, they can get saved too. Because he died to deal with that whole sin problem. And the Gnostics took that. And they just, in the cruelty of their lostness, in the, in the horrificness of their paganism, they took all that away. John says, no. Not going to happen. And so you here you have this beautiful, beautiful, beautiful picture of John, old apostle telling these struggling Christians 
who face so many obstacles. He's going to write another book to him in a few years, the same group of people, because they're dealing with the persecution from Domitian. It's going to destroy him. He's trying to destroy him. He says, listen to me. Get this Gnosticism out of here. This is truth. Anybody have any questions? Speak now. Yes, sir. Oh, uh, yeah, there's some, but not like this. But Gnosticism is still prevalent. Uh, you see Gnosticism in um, a lot of what you see sometimes in the holistic movement is Gnosticism, um, bits and pieces of it. You see elements of Gnosticism. I don't, I don't know of any, you know, somebody that comes along and says, hey, I'm a Gnostic, you know, in, in the classic sense. But elements of it exist. Anytime you see duality, uh, you see it. Anytime you see organizations that have secret knowledge, that you obtain certain things through a secret knowledge in and of itself as Gnostic. Gnostic. Gnosticism was so complex that, and, and, and I mean, I did barely scratch the surface, it is unbelievably complex, that elements of it have always existed even before there was Gnosticism and elements of it exist today. Secularism in its heart is Gnostic. People who tell you um, that they can do whatever they want and God will forgive them no matter what, in essence, are practicing Gnosticism, whether they call that or not. So there's elements of it everywhere. Yes, sir. So um, the way it kind of like metastasized uh, within the church, the way you describe it, kind of reminds me of like Rasputin, the kind of like offshoot religion that he was, you know, um, <coughs> Yeah, so you're, you're going with the Rasputin as an example to some degree of the false teaching? Okay. Yeah, well, since I have an expert in Russian history from the beginning 20th century. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, what Rasputin, you know, and others like him taught things that there are always elements. False teaching has certain elements that are always the same. And it is the insufficiency of Jesus and the insufficiency of Scripture. And so, you know, I don't, I'm not up to date on all my Rasputin uh, doctrines, uh, but I do know that he was a teacher. He, he, he taught some, I, I know what he did and how he did it and why he did it. And, and so for the sake of, of just decency and decorum, I'll mention it. But yeah, there are elements of that concept in there. Yeah. All of you going to go Google up Rasputin. So. Anything else? All right. Well, We'll see you later. I'll see you Sunday, hopefully. <laughs>